Hey, this is Sam from Brain Tools, and this is the shortcut version of our Brain Tools podcast, where you get just the Brain Tools, all four of them, uh, nothing else. It's short, practical, and sweet, and I hope you like it. Okay, and welcome to the Brain Tools section, where we're going to give you four practical Brain Tools to enhance trust at work between yourself, your teammates, your colleagues. Before we do that, a tiny bit of context, if I may. You can talk a context, all right? Context before the content. What is your context, Samuel? Gary V, context over content. Leading (laughs) into this episode, a couple of weeks beforehand, I went to Pasta Mama, which is this dinner in Melbourne, and I sat down with a bunch of randoms because that's part of the experience and proposed the topics we were going to do for Brains at Work, right? I said, here are the five topics. And I'm sitting next to this guy called Stephen, and I said, of these topics, these five topics we've got here, which is resilience, trust, connection, leadership, teamwork, which resonates with you most and which ones do you think we should talk about most? And he immediately said, oh, trust and connection. I asked him, Stephen, why? Stephen said, because it's so easy to talk about the importance of trust and connection at work and building rapport, but it's really, really hard to do. So as a minor frame, as a way of thinking about a science-backed method for improving how we connect and get people to trust you. Think about connection and trust as sharing. The people we trust the most are the ones we share the most with, share the most experiences, share the most history, share the most trusted experiences, essentially. And the reason is because of the brain synchronization that happens through sharing emotions, creates these shared memories that bond us together and allow us to understand other people and their behavior And therefore, we can better predict their actions, which is the basis of trust. We expect they're going to do a certain thing and we trust they're going to do it. So that's a bit of a frame as context leading into the brain tools. Predictability, isn't it? Right. Mm. I know what I'm going to get from you. And I think that links with that whole idea of the cognitive trust and the affective trust. And so I think it's a nice beeline, Sam, into the first brain tool, if I can give it to you. Let's do it. Brain tool, numero uno, recognize excellence. Mm. So, Sam, I think, and again, this is coming from personal experience, but having a look at the research is that often at low trust organizations, there is a very clear lack of recognition and encouragement. And the questions that people normally ask, you know, that employees is like, how do I know if I'm doing well? Like, why am I working this hard? Like, what's the point of doing so? And I think when you have those two questions that have definitely popped up to me before, um, you know, in dealing with employees, but also myself personally, it's really difficult to know what behaviors, attitudes you should actually adopt and repeat that are leading to positive results if you're not given praise or you're not recognized for that. And so the solution, Sam, is very simple. You want to praise excellent behaviors that are leading to excellent results to leverage the positive feedback loops that actually mean the high trust organization will actually propel and prosper. So that's the solution, if that makes sense so far. That makes a lot of sense so far. And I'm already thinking about how that ties into what we know about the brain. Out of interest, can I ask some color commentary for you? I'm thinking dopamine personally. Yes. Well, I'm thinking dopamine and social rewards, which we know are a massive driver of our behavior. Super interesting as well, because that links super nicely with BJ Skinner's operant conditioning. You remember the good yeah. old experiment, right? Where you had you had the rats. okay. Yeah. Just just for everyone, I'm I'm not condoning this ethically. All right, this is not a good thing. But BJ Skinner, um, when he was doing this, and he coined operant conditioning, which is like positive and negative reinforcement, had a little rat in there, and basically, when the rat was in the cage, so to speak, and would press down on a lever, um, when it was red, the light was red, then they get an electric shock. But if 
it was a white color, then they'd actually press down the lever, they would get back uh, a pellet. And obviously the steady state that was reached is if white, then press, if red, don't press. And I think I'm just simply saying, obviously the link with dopamine reward and goal-directed behavior is really, really clear. And we've been through that in previous episodes. However, I'm not saying treat your colleagues and employees like rats. (laughs) I'm not, I'm not saying get them in like a little workstation and then like get some electric shocks going. I'm simply saying leverage reward, leverage motivation, extrinsic and intrinsic, and it will make a massive, massive difference. You you heard it here first, folks, go get some dog shock collars, put them on your employees and shock them anytime they're not behaving. It does really, really nicely tie in with what we know about reinforcement learning, which is that dopamine driven learning feedback loop. So really, every time you're praising people in public and you're recognizing excellence, you're reinforcing that behavior through the social reward. Absolutely love it. And so the question becomes like, how do you how do you go about using this um, in an organization from a work perspective? Now, I think the really important point to highlight here is the praise or the recognition of excellence. The closer it is after the goal has been met, the better. The longer you wait, the less likely you are to have, quote unquote, the the really key dopamine hit. You want to make sure it's Mm. tangible, unexpected, personal, and public, according to the the following formula, which I'll do. But I think one thing I want to leverage massively is unexpected is the key, novelty and surprise. You want to be mindful of having these formal recognition ceremonies, which do have a time and place, but again, it can come across a little bit contrived. So Sam, I've got an example for you. Are you ready? Yeah, please give us an example. It's actually about you. (laughs) Live on air. Let's do this. Sam, um, I wanted to say, well done, because you absolutely smashed out the podcast digest for our upcoming interviews. And I know you've been putting a lot of work into that. And when I was going over it, the questions that you asked were so well detailed and so well researched. So I think that, you know, the interview is going to be really revealing and valuable. So I just want to say, well done. Oh, thank you. I'm definitely going to do more of that now. Thanks, mate. Really appreciate it. That was not planned at all, was it? Now, (laughs) the key thing of of that, when we go through this though, is the formula, right? It's leveraging the person, the result that you've achieved, the behavioral reason with specific examples, and then you reinforce that praise. I think the key thing though that I say, if you're implementing this, just be mindful of what you praise. Outcome versus process is the classic case. A lot of Carol Dweck's research goes into when you praise people for the outcome, particularly students, they're less likely to take risks. They're less likely to do stuff because they're looking at that outcome. Be mindful of the process and outcome so people can reach that cause and effect relationship. And that is brain tool number one, recognize excellence. Brain tool number one. And I like that you recognize my excellence, which is validating my existence a little bit. (laughs) <laughs> making me feel pretty good. What, what a time to be alive. We live great what, lives, don't we? <laughs> what a time to be alive. Makes a really good point, that last one, about uh, acknowledging process over outcome because you're rewarding the behavior rather than the result, which has a whole bunch of other factors that could tie into it. You know, could be uh, just a sales cycle, for example. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't use recognition without a face. You wouldn't just randomly acknowledge people and not announce who it was, right? You'd hope so. No, I'm just going to You'd type in not. like random random praise generator into Google yeah. and just let's 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 just go. Let's go. Well, can, can you imagine in a company having an award and then not saying who it was for? Someone oh. won an award this month. Well done. No one. Yeah, you wouldn't trust that. And that leads really well into brain tool number two, which is add a face to everything. So from an overview perspective, high view, with everything remote these days, one simple way to build more trust is to add a face into every email. Slack's message, DM, memos, because seeing a smiling face subconsciously boosts our perception of trust. Smiles are a signal of no threat in the animal kingdom, in the human kingdom too. That's what we look at. 
So really, really simple. Just adding a face, whether that's an emoji or the face of a person, a human being, is going to enhance trust in those situations. That makes a lot of sense. In terms of like the the science behind it, what are you thinking? So we know that the fusal form facial area, FFA, or the fusal form gyrus, which processes face, uh, is also tied to the regions of our brain that process trust. And when we see a smiling face, effectively, we instantly have this trigger of, I can trust this person, I can trust this face. And there's a, a little bit of research out there that shows that this also applies to emojis because we process them the same way as we process real faces. I'll give you an example, right? Imagine someone saying, you say, hey, I've just had this project. I've done this work. Is it good? And you, you know, let me know what you think. And someone sends back a message and say, says, oh, it's okay. Just okay. Or they send you a message saying, oh, you know, okay, thanks. And a smiley face. Which one's going to leave you feeling like you did a better job? You'd hope the one with the smiley face. I look at the like the two words that I hate the most are okay and fine. Oh, it's so bad, aren't they? <laughs> oh, I sit there, especially with the full stop. If it's just like fine, full stop, I'm like, what did I do wrong? <laughs> Absolutely. Right. And it's because text lacks emotional context because so much of our emotional context is nonverbal. It's the way we smile or look or the tone of our voice. Basically, the way you can implement this tool is in your text messaging. Add a face, add an emoji because A, they're processed the same way in the brains. But in any sales or marketing emails, you can add a smiling headshot to your email signature. Or if you're sending out a company memo, add a photo of the smiling CEO. Or if you've got a web page, add a photo of smiling customers. Or if you're communicating with people via text, rather than sending just an okay, okay and a smiley face is 10x better and it feels a lot better. So just add a face to any message because every case and every message needs a face. It makes sense as well because when you were talking earlier about when we talked about the idea of biases and heuristics, I want to be really, really mindful of the judgments people make early on when they're receiving a message either for the first time or consistently. How would you go about implementing this from a work perspective? I can tell you really simply, the way I go is I almost never send a Slack message or an email or a DM without some kind of smile in there, even if that's just a basic emoji emoticon or the one you wear use symbols. I always just have some form of face in that communication because it humanizes it. And that's how I would use it. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I think just adding to that, always just be probably mindful of um, the content of your message. I know we talk about context and content, but you don't want to have a smiley face off saying you're fired. <laughs> as, a, as an example. But yeah, it's a really good point. It's it's worrisome that we have to add that caveat, but it's so true. <laughs> it's, it's just like, you know, when you're telling someone bad news and you're just smiling yeah. the entire time, you want to obviously make sure that you've got congruity between Hi, your message. you're fired. Hi, you're fired. No, but I, um, yeah. yeah, very good. Yeah, so that's it. Brain tool number two, which is add a face to all your, your messages uh, to enhance trust. Yeah, beelines really nicely into brain tool number three because we talked about the idea of recognizing excellence. We want to make sure we're communicating excellence in a way that is obviously warm and human. And then obviously in these messages, you're going to be commuting something and you're communi- mm. communicating information. And so brain tool number three is let information flow. Sam. Okay. Let uh, let information flow. Yeah. Well, my analogy for this is rivers. Okay. Because like this is I, again, I know this is like a very lazy analogy, but I think it works quite well. Which is if you've got a river, right, and you've like you're actually looking at the flow of water, Sam. What would happen if I put up a massive dam? 
uh, you would build a dam. You'd build a blockage and we'd go swimming there and beavers would come. Yeah, beavers would be great. It'd be a great time, but then the water won't make it to obviously to the ocean, which is right. not what we want, right? Because obviously we're all about information flow. And that's the analogy that I've got for you, right? If you put up all these bottlenecks and blockades, the information can't travel freely throughout mm. the organization. And I think it's always very important to recognize, like from an employee-employer perspective, when you're not told where you're going and you're not told why you're going and how you're going, then it's really hard to be engaged, right? And that's where ambiguity bias comes in. Like you're more likely to take the path of least resistance when you don't know what to do. And if you don't know what to do, you end up doing nothing. And what was really interesting, there was a stat from Citigroup and LinkedIn in 2014 that said only 40% of employees report that they are well-informed about goals, strategies, and tactics. And I sat there and said, wow, so there's things that are being kept from people. And that makes sense. You've got to be mindful of what you are communicating, but not knowing those things seems fundamental, Sam. Well, it does, and it ties really well into what we've talked about on prior episodes about stress and managing well-being, where when we're uncertain about certain events, that uncertainty actually exacerbates our stress response because we're unable to predict what comes next. Absolutely, and I think that makes the solution very clear. It's like we want to make sure we're sharing information between departments, between colleagues, between leaders, and so on. And the proof's in the pudding. Like a 2015 study of 2.5 million manager-led teams in 195 countries. It's a lot of countries. Actually, that's commensurate with how many countries are listening to this right now, hopefully. But um, they found uh, workforce engagement improved when supervisors had some form of daily communication with direct reports. So it becomes really important to understand how you go about communicating this information and the structures and processes you put in place. Pack it up. Pack it in. That's it. That's all you need to know. Just do it. No. <laughs> the, the real question is with that really, really interesting research and this idea of information flow like a river, how do you actually use that? What does that look like in the workplace? Yeah. So I'm going to funnel it down, uh, hopefully, um, from a company perspective and then obviously like sort of a weekly and daily perspective. Yeah. Um, I think from a company, it's like, how are we going is the question that people want to know because people like to win. Right. And if people aren't winning, right, then clearly want to be mindful of why we're losing and what that actually looks like. And so, again, a lot of companies do this, but you know, your Monday morning meetings when you're setting up the week. But I think what normally gets misconstrued or is wrong is what you're actually communicating there. And I think very clearly, it's like, what are we doing in terms of our progress towards our goals? And as individuals, how are you going in reference to those goals? And my, my only thing that I just want to be mindful here, if you are um, a leader in an organization or part of a company from uh, what I can gather, is if you're worried that you're, as a company, you're not doing very well, you still want to try and communicate that obviously in the best way possible. You'd be really surprised how galvanized people are when they care about the mission, they care about the people they're with, and they know that they're you know, not doing fantastically well, they, are, they normally can bounce back very well. And again, there's a lot of research that suggests that, but Sam, want to get your thoughts. It makes perfect sense to me. I'm just thinking about it when you come from the perspective of people telling you they're struggling with something, uh, your immediate response is you you want to rally to their side. Yeah, you want to help. But I think the the only final things to say about this is like daily progress. You know, you have your, your daily yeah. meeting of five, 10 minutes. Hey, what are your, what is, what's your intention today? What information do you need from me? Um, how can I support you if you are the leader or you're actually in the team? And then office hours in the calendar. If you literally are, you know, put it in there being like four to five, anyone can contact me here. I'm happy to get on a Zoom or happy to get on Microsoft Teams. Even if no one rocks up, the fact that there's a safe space there means that the time that it is required and someone comes to the party means you'll end up preventing a lot of downstream problems from happening. So that is brain tool number three, let information flow like a river.
let it flow like a river. That office hours idea is absolutely brilliant because it's about the signal of trust it sends. Such a good point. I actually didn't think about it like that. Really it's, good. It's a signal of trust. And speaking of signals of trust, we're going to brain tool number four, which is admit it. This is a really hard one for later. As an overview, trust is reciprocal. You build trust by admitting things that are vulnerable and true by sharing those emotional experiences because doing so shows trust in the other person. Give you an example. When you meet someone who's very honest for the first time, you almost instinctively trust them, especially when they start telling you about things going wrong with their life. And that is as a result of that neural synchronization, that brain synchrony that happens, that triggering and release of oxytocin. Mm. So what would be then the science behind something like this? Because reciprocity is something that's talk, spoken about a lot in influences. Robert, Robert Cialdini talks about reciprocity and liking. What, are, what underpins that? When we look at it, there's a really great piece of research out there by Anna Brock at the University of Mannheim, looked at seven studies, hundreds of participants, and found this effect called the beautiful mess effect. And effectively, mm. what that says is there's a massive difference in the way we perceive showing vulnerability, admitting mistakes, disclosing information, and how other people actually view this vulnerability really, really positively. And Anna's comment was that self-disclosure, so admitting things, can build trust, seeking help can boost learning, admitting mistakes can foster forgiveness, and confessing one's romantic feelings can lead to new relationships. Mm. taking that first step isn't it it's taking the leap of faith it's actually you know you go in and then you know someone might come to the party it really is and it ties into what we know about the the neuroscience around predicting other people's behaviors and how that ties into trust as well because when people tell you how they're feeling when they admit something when the information is flowing then it's much easier for you to guess what they're trying to do because they've already told you and therefore to act accordingly and and that's what ties into this trust yeah, people like those that are similar to them, right? And you can only really, quote unquote, judge if someone's similar to you by actually communicating and admitting and actually leaning in, as Cheryl Sandberg would say. Now, yep. <laughs> how do you use it, my friend? This one is really simple to use, but really painful for a lot of people who find this quite scary and confronting. Mm -hmm. I'll give you a couple examples of how to admit things and how to self-disclose to build trust. Starting a new job. Start off by admitting something that's about yourself, that's out there, that's a little bit vulnerable that people can connect with. Maybe it's a weird hobby. Maybe it's something you do on the weekend that you think people are going to find strange. Maybe it's something personal about your childhood because this gives people something to grab onto, to connect with and shares that emotional experience with them. If you're a leader or manager, publicize your mistakes. We just talked about information flow, but owning your mistakes and putting them out there and admitting them, there is a lot of research that shows this also increases your perception of credibility internally in a company by owning your mistakes and putting them out there. And it builds trust uh, in that reciprocal manner we talked about just before. Or if you're a salesperson, one thing you can do is to admit that your product or service can't do everything. Own the faults, be forced. To kind of summarize it, this brain tool of admit it, it's basically transparency breeds trust. And so anytime you're self-disclosing information and being really, really transparent and honest, you're creating a situation where trust is created and connection is formed. Mm, interesting. And it's something that like when I'm getting this right now, and I, I really do like this brain tool, I'm thinking about it from the perspective of the, all our all our heuristics, all our energy, like we're almost, we always want to protect ourselves oh, and absolutely. say, no, no, I haven't done anything wrong. No, I'm perfect. No, I've got this. But what mm. you're saying is 
you know, taking that first step, being vulnerable, can, you know, can increase your credibility. And then throughout the organization, I'd be so interested to know in the 2015, what happened to Wells Fargo, what the leaders were doing. Were they the ones leaning in being like, hey, did I make a mistake? Again, I don't know. And please don't sue us, Wells Fargo, because again, you're a lot bigger than us, but I'd be interested to know. <laughs> I'd be very interested to know. And I'd be interested to know people who are listening to this out there, whether they've had an experience with this, whether they've had a leader come out and admit something's gone terribly wrong. And I'm thinking about uh, Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett in their annual address every year. The first thing they do is they admit all the investment mistakes they made. And then they go on to tell you how they're working on those. And the result is by putting them out there and putting them and putting that information into the hands of the people who could withdraw their money, they are showing a massive amount of trust. And as I said, trust is reciprocal. So this process of admitting things is actually a great way to build enhanced trust. So good. Very good. All right. So let's go back to the top, summarize the brain tools, give them back again, starting off with brain tool number one. Brain tool number one, recognize excellence. Always be mindful that in low trust organizations, there's a lack of recognition and a lack of encouragement. We want to make sure that people know what they're doing is the right thing to do. And there's positive feedback loops there. So just make sure that when someone does something well, do it immediately so that it's unexpected, it's personal, and it's public, and make sure that you praise the outlaw process just as much as the outcome, and you'll be very, very clear to create um, sort of that positive culture and that high trust within any organization. That's brain tool number one, recognize excellence. And you wouldn't have a reward without a face to it, which leads into brain tool number two, add a face to all your communication because we know faces subconsciously boost trust, specifically smiling faces. So whether that's an emoji, a headshot, any way you can add a face to a contextless text message, do it. And that's going to enhance trust in your communications. And that's brain tool number two. Leads beautifully into brain tool number three, let information flow. Again, rivers. Want to let the water flow? Obviously, you need to have dams occasionally as it goes through, but it's the same as information. When people don't know something, they normally end up doing nothing. And we want to be mindful that the sharing of information, both positive and negative in terms of good news and bad news, is super, super important. Hold those daily office hours, daily progress, communicate where the company is at, how they're going. And as per Sam's really good point, if they're not doing fantastically well, make sure you look to admit it. And that's brain tool number three, which is let information flow. And speaking of admitting it, brain tool number four, the best way to build trust is to admit something, self-disclose information because trust is reciprocal. Whether that is admitting something painful and true about yourself, sharing an experience from your past with a new team as a leader, talking about your mistakes and failures you make, which actually makes you more credible. Transparency breeds trust and admitting and self-disclosing information is a one-way street to improving trust with those people around you in your workplace. Mm, four, four brain tools. I think they're quality. I hope they're quality. Do we trust their quality? Yes, we do. <laughs> I, I trust their quality. Do I trust the sources? Eh, maybe. Just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, we're such yeah, – be really skeptical of us. Yeah. Sam, 80-20 is always to wrap up this part three of Brains at Work. My 80-20 is trust is human transparency. A culture of trust is a culture of transparency because antiness is the antidote to distrust toxicity. Mm, and the beeline into that of my 80-20 is a lack of trust is the root of most companies' people problems and remembering that yep. business is people. So be really mindful that all these downstream consequences that you're seeing the symptoms are normally at the root cause of a lack of trust. I'm, I'm feeling this episode. <laughs> this is hitting me in the feels a little bit. <laughs> it's turned into our own personal therapy episode. Yeah. But 
there you have it, Sam. That's part three of Brains at Work. And I think um, we leave people just being mindful to focus on that implementation. In the first section, obviously, you know, writing down the key things that you've learned, pick your favorite brain tool. Pick your favorite brain tool, implement it straight away at work tomorrow, the day after, and get cracking because, again, we want to leverage that self-directed neuroplasticity. But, uh, Sam, I reckon that's bye for now. That's bye for us and see you next week. 